Welcome to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Happy Easter to all. Uh, this program is not uh, Easter related at all, but if you want to hear something Easter related, go over to um, the amazing world of radio, amazing.greatdetectives.net, and we have a couple Easter programs up there for your listening pleasure. But on this podcast, it's our 2800th episode special, and only 196 more episodes till we get to 3000 uh, podcasts. For today's special, I'm bringing you something that I heard uh, about a year ago and immediately wanted to play it for you, but uh, also did have an agreement to not share this for a year, and that year is up. So uh, we're bringing you a pilot for a radio series. As far as I know, it was never actually aired, but it's a real curiosity, uh, and it's a lot of it is about an investigation, uh, though not all, and that may be one of the challenges of the series, but we'll talk about that after the episode. So now we're going to bring you a, a pilot uh, audition that was uh, uh, from 1948, and the title of the series is The Dead Letter Office. If you've ever written an important letter that wasn't answered... Or waited breathlessly to receive a letter that never came... Then you'll want to listen to this unprecedented program that reveals for the first time the inside story of... The Dead Letter Office! In the past year, 18 million pieces of undeliverable mail were declared dead by the United States Post Office. These letters contain thousands of precious and irreplaceable documents. Stocks, bonds, mortgages, wills, almost... And heaven alone can tell how many words of confession, forgiveness, love and devotion that money can't buy. Who knows? There may be something that belongs to you in... The Dead Letter Office. Neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. That's right. But there's one thing that stops us mailmen every time. The letter that's carelessly addressed. Combining entertainment with public service, we bring you tonight thrilling, authentic case histories from the Dead Letter Office. And here to present them is your host, Postmaster Michael D. Fanning of Los Angeles. Thanks, hi, Everback, and good evening, everyone. On a crisp October evening in Pennsylvania, a man on a hospital cot asked his wife to write a letter for him, hoping his strength would last until he could sign his name at the bottom. It was the last letter this man would ever write, and probably the most important. I'm... I'm dying, Frida. And I want to clear my conscience. <coughs> Joe should not be in prison. I was the one that killed that cop. I've always been afraid to say so, Frida. Because 
If Joe got out of prison, he would kill me for sure. <laughs> but cancer has beat Joe to it. Joe and the law too. Tell Joe I, I'm sorry for what I did. And pray for my soul. The thin and undulating signature scrawled at the bottom of that letter read, Frank. You're a postmaster. It is part of your official job to open dead letters and try to see that they are delivered. This exciting document tells you that a man named Joe is serving time in a penitentiary for a crime now confessed by another man. With this confession in her hand, Frida could set Joe free. But the confession isn't in her hand. It's on a desk in the dead letter office. You search the innermost recesses of your befuddled brain. You look for a way to unravel this obstruction to justice. But all you have is a couple of fragments of names of people living in two cities whose combined populations exceed four million. There's no return address on the envelope. There's no such street address as the one to which the letter has been sent. You lie awake nights trying to figure it out. Then one morning an assistant says to you, Sure, it's tragic, Mike, but look, there's 18 million of these letters a year. We can't handle them. You remember that you met a graphologist at a party one time. You look him up. Maybe he can tell something from the handwriting. Surely, Mike, his character maybe, but I can't look at the one-word signature of a dying man and tell you his name or his age or where he lives. So the letter dies, and with it dies the hope of an innocent man serving time in a prison for a murder he didn't commit. All because of a letter carelessly addressed. Millions of letters that perish in this fabulous graveyard of correspondence known as the Dead Letter Office contain money. It was almost $200 million this past year. Yes, in 1947 alone, more than 78,000 pieces of mail carrying an average of $240 each never reached their destinations. Through the vigilance and diligence of post office employees, part of that money was recovered for its owners. The rest, it was lost. No, it wasn't lost. It was thrown away by carelessness. Well, some of those letters must be pretty pathetic, Postmaster Fanning. They are, High. It's not a pleasant thing to see the money for an elderly mother's operation wind up in the dead letter office. On the other hand, some of the letters are quite humorous. Oh, for instance? Well, imagine opening a dead letter that contains half of a $1,000 bill. There it is, $500 and yet nothing, unless you happen to have both parts. Well, was there any message with it? Eight words. It said, Okay, baby, you win. Here's the other half. How can a person take something as valuable as money and throw it away on an incorrect address? Sometimes the cause is hasty confusion. Let me illustrate. A man in a Kansas City hotel room is packing to make an eastbound train when the telephone rings. Yes? Go ahead, Cleveland. Here's your party. Henry! Oh, yes. My train leaves in 15 minutes, honey. Look, I'll meet Henry, you. Henry, the money hasn't arrived yet. And if I don't get it to the bank before 3 o'clock today, they're going to foreclose on us. But, Hilda, I sent it. The whole $300. I sent it four days ago, and I even put a special delivery on it. Well, it's not here, Henry, and I don't know what we'll do if we lose the house. 
Well, they did lose the house, I'm sorry to say. Maybe it was haste, maybe it was civic pride that encouraged Henry to leave off the word Tennessee following the word Cleveland on that envelope. I guess it never occurred to him that there are 23 separate municipalities in the United States named Cleveland. The post office department, eager to achieve delivery of the letter, sent it eventually to 17 of those 23 post offices. They came awfully close in Cleveland, Ohio, when they found a street with the same name as the one in Cleveland, Tennessee. This married couple lost their home. Ultimately, they recovered the $300. But you have my word for it that it cost the post office department more than $300 in man hours and travel to complete that delivery. Actually, you paid a part of it in taxes. Your share of the added expense heaped upon us all by careless people whose incorrect addresses and refusal to include return addresses resulted in 18 million dead letters in this country last year. One question often asked post office folks is this one. And uh, what happens to that money in the dead letters? Well, it all goes into the treasury of the United States, and it helps defray the cost of such expensive post office operations as the one we're going to describe right now. one Tuesday morning, the following teletype message was received at the criminal investigation section of the post office department in Washington. Please rush inspector to investigate our alleged theft by rural letter carrier. The message was signed by a postmaster in a southern village. Ever eager to preserve the almost unparalleled record of honesty among postal employees, the department had special investigator Judge Wood on his way within the hour. Arriving at the southern town, this is what he heard from the postmaster. I reckon a lot of folks wouldn't regard this as a very important, Inspector. It's only $16 it's missing, but it's the first time this office ever had any trouble like this, and I'm naturally anxious to preserve all record. Uh, suppose you tell me just exactly what happened. Well, sir, uh, Gabe Tuttle is an RFD carrier. He's only got about a year to go to be eligible for his pension. Uh, out on RFD number two, there's a farmer named Jessup. Uh, well, Gabe's been taking Jessup's mail to him as long as I've been with P.O.D., uh, well, sir, Tuesday last, Jessup come traipsing in the office and unleashed some pretty harsh words. Well, what was the nature of his complaint? Well, it seems Jessup had some letters to mail, didn't have stamps for him. Uh, so he put three letters along with a dollar bill in his RFD box. Well, Gabe picked him up and apparently mailed the letters, but he didn't leave Jessup's 91 cents change. Oh, this is ridiculous. In the first place, the wind could have blown the dollar bill away. Well, it didn't blow the letters away. Then someone could have stolen the change. Well, Gabe didn't leave no change. He says he picked up the letters, figured Jessup forgot to put stamps on them, so he put stamps on them himself. He did the same thing second time. Second time? That's right. Jessup decided to test old Gabe with a banknote of larger denomination. So the second time, he put out a $5 bill. And the same thing happened? Exactly. It happened a third time with a $10 bill. Well, what's the letter carrier got to say for himself? Oh, he says he never saw any of the money and claims Jessup owes him 39 cents for the stamps he put on the letters. Hmm. I think I know how to handle this, Postmaster. Suppose you meet me over at the hotel tomorrow morning, right after Jessup goes out on his route. 
the following morning, the postal inspector had Farmer Jessup place four more stampless letters in his RFD box, together with a marked $20 bill. From a crack hole in a barn across the road, the inspector furtively watched. Sure enough, letter carrier Gabe Tuttle came along in his old Ford, reached into the box, and removed something from it. As he did so, he looked around him in all directions. Then he got back into his car and drove away. Up the road some 200 feet, the local postmaster waited behind a big elm tree. Stepping out into the road as Gabe Tuttle's car pulled up, he flagged him. The inspector from Washington ran to the scene. He and the local postmaster searched Gabe Tuttle. His pockets, his mail pouch, his car. The letters they found, but no marked $20 bill. Apologizing, they withdrew sheepishly and let the bristling letter carrier go on his way. Well, but uh, Postmaster Fanning, the, the money was in the box. If the mailman didn't get it, who did? Hi, it took the postal inspector two more days to find that out. Well, did he land himself a jailbird? Songbird would be more accurate, Hi. All four bills, the one, the five, the ten, and finally the Mark 20, were found in a bird's nest high in the tree to which Farmer Jessup's mailbox was attached. A mother robin had taken them from the RFD box and woven them into the nest that protected her young. Well, then it was a robin that did the robin. Well, thank you, Hi. You saved me from perpetrating that pun myself. Of course, it cost the post office department a tidy sum to complete this investigation, but it was worth it to protect the reputation of an honest mail carrier. Yes, when you're a postal employee, you get to know a lot of things. You get to know all the abbreviations. RSVP, SWAK, BYOL. You get to know that you'll handle X number of very personal letters to a fellow named Santa Claus around Christmas time. And that a certain percentage of them inevitably will bear Christmas seals in place of stamps. And you scratch your head when you read a letter that begins, If you don't receive this, let me know right away. Yes, you get to know many things, but you never get to know why people don't understand that a letter important enough to write is important enough to address properly. You're in the dead letter section one day when a trusted fellow employee yells to another, Hey, Charlie, get a load of this! Of what? This sweepstake ticket on the Cambridgeshire in England. Ah, so what? If I've opened one like that, I've opened a hundred. A hundred winners? <laughs> Ah, oh, don't pull my leg. Look, look at the chart, Charlie Z. 238970. That's the first prize. 80,000 bucks. <laughs> yes, $80,000. 80,000 dead dollars buried in the dead letter office. <laughs> Of course, not only letters, but packages also have a habit of expiring in the dead letter office. In a way, they are buried more ceremoniously with honors. Unclaimed, these packages are opened, and eventually the contents are auctioned off to help defray expenses. Last year, we of the post office department auctioned off about $300,000 worth of goods from unclaimed packages after exhausting every possibility of delivery. We sold everything, from a fur-lined diver suit down to a package of 10,000 Mexican jumping beans. That package, by the way, was opened underwater. It ticked, and we thought it might be a bomb. Some of the most interesting articles weren't even saleable, because they were things of value only to the intended receivers. But I want to tell you that you've got to be pretty hard-boiled not to choke up a little when you see a bronze baby shoe unclaimed, and your mind begins to speculate on what this loss means to some mother... 
But you don't have much time to be sentimental, because you'll hardly get started before a fellow worker bursts into your office and says, Well, Mike, the chain gang's at it again. That would mean chain letters. Millions upon millions of them trickle through the department every year. We'd like to put a stop to them. Well, but why, Postmaster Fanning? Doesn't every chain letter have a stamp on it? Doesn't that represent income to the department? Yes, hi, but it represents loss to the public. We want to discourage chain letters for two reasons. They are a lottery, and for that reason, they violate the law. And they take advantage of gullible people. Well, suppose you give us an example, Mike. All right. The chain letter in vogue at the moment is called the Luck of London. However, it doesn't exactly guarantee its receiver any good luck. There's a rather pointed threat that failure to comply with the request to copy the letter and send it on to six more people will bring bad luck. But, according to this chain letter, if you make your copies and send them out to six friends within 24 hours, good fortune will come to you. For instance, according to the letter, Gracie Allen, partner of George Burns, both often on the radio, sent her letters out promptly. And as a result, she suddenly came into $15,000 from an unexpected source. Well, is this true? Well, suppose we let Gracie Allen herself answer the question. We take you now to the home of George Burns and Gracie Allen in Beverly Hills. Gracie, Postmaster Fanning wants to know if the mailman ever delivered you a chain letter called The Luck of London. What mailman? It doesn't matter what mailman. Postmaster Fanning is not interested in the mailman. Well, he should be. After all, if the postmaster isn't interested in his own mailman... Forget the mailman. No, George. The postmaster may have forgotten about the mailman, but not Gracie Allen. Look, Gracie, Postmaster Fanning is trying to track down a rumor about you. Ah, you see, George? If we spent less time worrying about my reputation and more time worrying about the mailman, we'd have a better police department. Police to... This is not police. This is post office. Oh, George, you know I'm too old to play those silly games. Gracie, that's a wonderful character you've got there, and it's been feeding us both for a long time. But suppose you just be yourself for a moment and tell the public about this chain letter business. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to get serious for a moment. Anyone quoting me in a chain letter is not telling the truth. I have never written a chain letter, or I have never received any $15,000, $5,000, or $3,000, or any amount from an unexpected source. Chain letters are a waste of time and postage. If you receive one, destroy it. Forget it. It's a fraud. Thank you. Thank you, George Burns and Gracie Allen, for your cooperation in the Post Office Department's campaign against chain letters. And now, back to Postmaster Fanning. Thanks, Hi. I guess most of you good folks look upon a postmaster as a fellow who handles the letters you write, rather than writing letters himself. Well, maybe so, but tonight, I'd like to write one, a very important one, affecting millions of people. Suppose we call it... An open letter to Emily Post. Dear Mrs. Post... Your influence on American manners and etiquette has been commendable and wholesome. It's wonderful that you can tell us whether dunking a donut is correct and whether the pinky on the hand holding said sinker should extend upward, outward, or downward. But Mrs. Post, one little social custom created and endorsed by you who fashion the rules of good manners, today is costing the American government and the taxpayers somewhere in the neighborhood of $30 million a year. Here's how. The etiquette book says it just isn't fashionable for one to place a return address on a wedding announcement 
birth announcement, commencement invitation, or other types of formal social correspondence. As a result, Mrs. Post, the chances of any such announcement being delivered are cut by 50%. If the address of the intended receiver is incorrect, then there's just no place to deliver it. Who loses? The person who paid for the printing of the announcement, bought the stamp, took time to use up ink addressing it. Who else loses? The post office department, which pays for the wasted time of 17 different employees who handle the letter but can't deliver it. Who else loses? The taxpayers who foot the bill. Who else loses? The person who didn't receive the announcement and was robbed of the intended pleasure. Who else loses? The newlyweds or the graduate or the newborn baby who instead of receiving congratulations and perhaps a gift, possibly lose a friend. It's not right, Mrs. Post. As a favor to the public, to the post office, and to your government, how about revising the rules in the next edition of your wonderful book, Etiquette, and urging the public to include full return address on every single item they mail? Thank you, Mrs. Post. Last Wednesday afternoon on a New York Central passenger train approaching Buffalo, New York, a man hastily wrote a letter to his wife. It was... Only a quickie, honey, because we get into Buffalo in a few minutes. I'll leave this letter with the conductor and ask him to get it back to the mail car. Boy, was I ever tickled pink to get your telegram in Erie advising me that you'd found an apartment. Because after we call on those two wholesalers in Buffalo, the boss is coming in on to New York with me. He wanted to stay at a hotel, but I told him that would be silly to come to our apartment. But there's one thing that worries me, Pumpkin. The boss is very allergic to cats. The minute he gets near cats or anywhere where there's any cat hair, he starts to sneeze. So for Pete's sake, farm out the cats for a few days, will you? And be sure to vacuum everything good so there's no cat hair around. In order to agree with him and butter him up, I told the boss I hate cats. So you... the following morning, last Thursday that was, this letter was removed from the train and taken along with thousands of others to the world's largest post office in New York City. There it went through the usual routine of being sorted and cased and sent by truck to a substation on Long Island. Less than two hours later, it was in a postman's pouch. It was in the same pouch when the postman returned from making his rounds because the address on the envelope was a vacant lot in Jackson Heights. Postmaster Fanning, suppose you tell us what happened after that. Well, the letter went into a special sack assigned to the dead letter section. There on Friday morning, the day our correspondent was to bring his boss home, the letter was opened to determine whether or not it had any valuable enclosures before it was destroyed. Here to tell you the rest of the story is the man who opened the letter. Postal Clerk Herman Farrell of the New York Post Office. Uh, thank you, Postmaster Fanning. I suppose that through the years I've opened maybe two or three million dead letters. <laughs> When you've read that many, it gets, uh, it's just a job. Pretty impersonal one, too. But this letter had a particular importance to me. You didn't want to see that man take his allergic boss into an apartment full of cats and wind up losing his job. Oh, no, 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 it wasn't that, Mr. Van. And you see, I'm allergic to cats, too. And I want to tell you, when I get to sneezing... You managed to deliver the letter to the man's wife before he and his boss arrived. Well, I checked the city directory and all the telephone books, but I couldn't find any name close to it, so I... Called up a few dog and cat hospitals, thinking maybe they might have the name in their files. Any success? Nope. 
But right after that, if I do say so myself, I, I really had me an idea. What was that? Well, I knew these folks had a new apartment. Now, when you move into a new place, you've got to leave a deposit with the Edison Company for your electricity before they'll turn it on. <clears throat> well, I simply called up the Edison Company, asked if they had a meter listed in that name, and in two minutes, I had the correct address. And what time of day was it by then? 4 p.m. <laughs> I figured if the man was bringing his boss for supper, there was no time to dilly-dally. So, got on the express subway and headed for Jackson Heights. Did you get there on time? I was there all right by a quarter to five. But nobody answered the door. You were certain it was the right place? Postmaster Fanning, I uh, never heard so many cats <laughs> meowing in my whole life. <laughs> but a few minutes later, the lady got home. I started to tell her what happened right away. She wants to know what right I got reading her mail, but I finally got her straightened out. Did she get rid of the cats before her husband came home with the allergic boss? Yes, sir. Postmaster Fanning, who do you think took the cats off her hands? Don't tell me. Uh, yes, sir. I took them to a kennel for the lady. And postmaster, just thinking about her, how I sneeze on the way home, makes me want to... Gesundheit. In just a moment, Postmaster Fanning will bring you our Collector's Corner, a brief but exclusive special feature for America's 13 million stamp collectors, followed by another exciting dead letter. But first, here's a letter addressed to you. In this space, Mr. Sponsor, your commercial message will be delivered in the form of a letter. Carefully integrated, it will come not as an intrusion, but will follow the pattern and mood of the program. It won't be a non-sequitur jolt that says, now's a good time to go wind the clock, but it will be presented in the tempo and character of the show itself. And then, after the commercial has been delivered, we'll resume the program something like this. <laughs> Attention, stamp collectors. This is Collector's Corner, in which each week, Postmaster Michael D. Fanning brings you exclusive announcements of the new stamps to be issued. If you don't happen to be a philatelist, perhaps you have a friend who collects. If so, remember that stamps are one of the few gifts that never depreciate in value. Now, here's Postmaster Fanning. Stamp collectors, mark a red circle around the date March 23, 1949. On that day in Baltimore, Maryland, the first stamp ever to honor a baseball player will go on sale. It's a three-cent issue, and the great American it honors is Babe Ruth. Maybe it's because I was a newspaper reporter for many years, and maybe it's because I am by nature a nosy body. But I've always been highly intrigued by the contents of dead letters. When you stop to think of love unexpressed, gratitude never received, moral as well as financial debts never paid, all because of communications that fail to reach their respective destinations, well, it stirs up thoughts in the old thinking tank. And late at night, when you mull it all over, you see that what is in those letters, dead or alive, is really the story of America. Opening the dead letters, hoping to spring them to life, you see people raw and real, like they are. Now, I won't try to kid you, neighbor. Some of it's obscene and salacious. Some of it's nefarious and illegal. But it's predominantly good. And when you read something like a mother's forgiveness to a wayward son or a man's expression of belief and trust in another man, you somehow realize that most people are basically good. 
But you also realize that a sentiment expressed in an undelivered letter is really not expressed at all. It's left hanging in space in the lost limbo of dead letters. Perhaps the most memorable letter I have read from the dead letter section in many a moon is one written by a young lady to an old flame. Maybe the young lady is listening. Maybe the old flame is. It would be a violation of the postal laws and regulations, and it would prove embarrassing to others if I were to mention their real names. But the young lady's letter is an epic, and I've wondered more than once since I read it whether or not, but I'm getting ahead of the story. Let's just say it was a girl who lived in Illinois, and let's say her letter was addressed to a man in a hotel in San Francisco. And let's say it read something like this. Dear Bill, I wanted you to be the first to receive my wedding invitation, which is enclosed. Mama brought them from the printers yesterday. But Bill, my precious darling, this is the only one that will ever be mailed. Harold is a fine man, but I was right from the first time. Never so long as I live could I really love anyone but you. Not until I saw the names in print and the date set up in the engraving did I fully realize my mistake. This way, it will be embarrassing. I've played a horrible and in a way an unforgivable trick on Harold, but less of a trick than it would be to marry him when it's you that I love. I know that your financial position doesn't rate with Harold's. Mama's made that repeatedly clear. But I don't fancy pressing my lips to a bank book. It's you I want. Mother is furious. Harold is hurt. All my friends have said I'm wrong. But the die is cast. Phone me as soon as you receive this. And remember... This time, I'm the one doing the proposing. All of my love, forever and ever, Martha. Bill never received that letter. On the face of the envelope, a rubber stamp pressed the purple words, Return to Writer. But doggone it, how can you return anything to a writer who merely signs her name as Martha and gives no return address? Now, I know it sounds like the contrived, cliff-hanging ending of a super-melodramatic daytime serial, but a thousand times these questions have haunted me. Did Martha ever succeed in reaching Bill? Did he still want her? If she didn't get him, did she go back to Harold? Is she married? If so, to which boy? Or did her dramatic decision leave her a lonely spinster? I'd like to say to you, tune in next week for the answer, but I can't, because I don't know the answer. It's just another one of the millions of swallowed-up stories. Perhaps just another dream that died in the dead letter office. However, neighbor, I can say, please be with us again next week. I can tell you for sure that we'll open some unclaimed packages right here on the air. And that we'll have a special guest, Gregory Peck, who happens to be alive today only because of a dead letter. We'll have lots of dead letters to talk about next week, and maybe one of them will concern you. And so until we meet again, my 400,000 fellow postal employees, join me in wishing you a pleasant good evening. Michael D. Fanning, postmaster of Los Angeles, has presented thrilling and authentic stories from the files of the Dead Letter Office. 
This program is produced and directed by Vic Knight, with original music written and conducted by Walter Schumann. Hi, Aberbach speaking. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. Welcome back. Well, as a special, I don't think this is a bad idea, uh, you know, to look at this whole concept of dead letters. Uh, I think as a whole series, it's a lot more dubious uh, because essentially you're just learning about letters that got lost in the mail and were never found. And that's your show except for those investigative portions, which were actually the most interesting parts of the episode. Like the guy with the uh, missing postage money. Though that didn't have anything to do with dead letters. And I definitely felt for the guy with the um, letter to the wife uh, warning about the boss's cat allergies and how much effort he went to into. Though I think those uh, stories kind of got shortened down by them trying to stuff everything they could into the particular episode. I think particularly if you're going to look at it as an ongoing series, it would have made much more sense to expand on some of those incidents, you know, do one or two incidents and do them right, rather than, uh, you know, trying to cover everything under the sun. I also, the, the tone is really odd, I think, for the series, because, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with something like people misaddressing envelopes, you might not want to handle it with the same sort of forceful zealousness that other series do for things like spying for the Soviet Union, dealing narcotics, murder, distributing pornography. It's generally uh, just a bit of human error and maybe a bit of ignorance, you know, a little bit of gentle education rather than going as hardcore as this episode does. I mean, I think this is the first time I've heard a radio series that, you know, just tried to publicly shame Emily Post. And I guess maybe it was past time for someone to give the smackdown to Emily Post. In all seriousness, despite the uh, writing issues, there really is a lot of talent that was involved in this. You know, we, we got to hear multiple uh, performances by Howard McNear and Herb Vigran. You know, such really uh, staples of solid old-time radio character acting. And, of course, the music was composed by Walter Schumann, who went on to write the music for another ser series called Dragnet the next year. And they even got a nice cameo from, you know, two legitimate stars in uh, George Burns and Gracie Allen. And it's always interesting to hear her talk, uh, particularly her serious voice, because that's so different from the voice she uses in most of her other uh, performances. So again, I thought this was a nice special. I think it could have been an interesting series if they'd opted for, uh, you know, something where you focused on investigations and situations where uh, things actually got found. Or maybe do like a sort of unsolved, 
a mysteries type of uh, thing where you've got the dead letters and you're like, you know, if uh, this letter's to you or you're able to prove it, you know, get in touch with uh, a post office. That might make it more interesting as well if you had the potential of some of these letters being found. But just saying, well, who knows? Yep. Uh, I mean, other than bringing across the great message that we all need to put return addresses on the envelopes, those segments were a bit more problematic. It's also worth noting that one thing that may have inspired this series is there was actually another uh, program called Strange Wills, which f was all centered around unusual events that happened with wills. Uh, so somebody may have thought, you know, if uh, we can have a series about wills, why not have a series about dead letters? didn't work out, but uh, like I said, it's still an interesting curiosity, and I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, it was a lot of fun to listen to. All right, that'll do it for today. Uh, I do want to recognize our Patreon of the day. Thank you so much to William. He's been one of our Patreon supporters since uh, September, and he's currently supporting us at the detective sergeant level of $7.14 or more per month. Thanks so much for your support, William. Uh, join us back here tomorrow as our listener's choice countdown continues, and we unveil the number 18 show. In the meantime, send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net, follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives, and become one of our friends on Facebook, facebook.com slash radiodetectives. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.